Apache Cassandra can serve as both the real-time data store for online transaction processing, as well as the read-intensive database for data warehousing operations. In order to combine these two use cases into a single database, Apache Cassandra required lots of innovation. In today's episode of Software Engineering Daily, we discuss the internals of Cassandra. Tim Berglund takes us through how Cassandra performs reads and writes, and how Cassandra offers tunable consistency. We also discuss what inspirations Cassandra took from the Amazon Dynamo paper, as well as the Google Bigtable paper. Tim Berglund is an engineer with Datastax, a company that develops and provides support for the Cassandra database. He will be hosting training sessions for Apache Cassandra at the upcoming Stratoplus Hadoop World in San Jose, and Apache Cassandra will be the focus of our conversation. Tim, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be on the show. And I should say, technically, I'm not an engineer uh, oh, for Datastax. Okay. Uh, so I'm, what I'm going to do is is get rid of all my credibility with your audience right up front. Mostly, I'm a manager. Now, I do write code, and I, I am responsible for a lot of training materials. We'll talk about that. I certainly have a background as a developer, but I don't work for Datastax as an engineer. We okay. still have still have lots of cool stuff to talk about, though, so don't worry. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, this will be, we'll consider that an eventually consistent introduction. Exactly. Uh, um, so, with that in mind, what is Cassandra? All right, great question. Uh, Cassandra is um, a distributed database. Uh, that's probably the, the simplest way to think about it. Um, if you like the term NoSQL, then it definitely fits into that category. It's one of these non-relational or post-relational or databases that, that happen not to use a relational data model. And in that universe of databases, um, there's, you know, once, once you go outside the relational camp, uh, there are a couple of characteristics I think are helpful to think about. One is, are you built for scale or not, Cassandra? Absolutely. Cassandra is built for scale, uh, period. And in terms of data model, it has what I would describe as a tabular data model. It presents in a very familiar way to a relational developer, kind of looks like the relational model is kind of winking at you. Uh, it's not relational, but um, you store data in rows and columns and you know, there are data types and uh, select queries and insert queries and things like that. And Cassandra can serve as both the real-time data store for online or transactional applications. It can also serve as the read-intensive database for data warehousing operations. You kind of touched on this in terms of the data model, but how does Cassandra achieve this combination of features where it can exist as both the real-time data store and the the read-intensive database for data warehousing? Uh, great question. So, yeah, give me a minute on that one. That, that's you, you kind of pressed a button there. There's a lot to talk about. Um, now, historically, and uh, yeah, you, know, you heard this more in the early days of Cassandra four and five years ago, but uh, Cassandra has always been thought of as a database with amazing write performance. And the, the downside of that, that, that's cool, by the way, because usually writing is a lot harder than reading in a database. That's always true in relational databases. So that's kind of neat and a curiosity um, and gives you access to lots of applications you, you couldn't use to build things with otherwise. The downside of that is people have kind of taken that to mean, well, it must be slow, it reads. Uh, that's not really the case. But let's kind of take the right performance first. The secret to the right performance um, 
has to do historically with the fact that when you when you zoom into a particular node in this distributed database that's taking writes, um, there's under the covers a thing called a log structured merge tree, and really what that means is writes get batched up in memory for a short period of time and then written out sequentially in these immutable data files. So everything about that write path is aligned towards getting the best performance out of the IO subsystem possible. You're never, for example, seeking to a place on disk and changing something on in place uh, and then moving on. You're always doing this nice, fast, sequential write. So um, that's how you get the fast write performance. Um, now, read performance, on the other hand, um, sort of comes out in the wash. You, you still end up getting real high performance uh, read performance. What you don't get, uh, you said using Cassandra as a data warehouse, um, what you don't get out of this system is real flexible ad hoc reads. So if you want truly ad hoc analytics on top of your transactional data, you're going to layer some other kind of system on top of the Cassandra data. Uh, and historically, the answer has been Hadoop. And more recently, the answer is Spark. Um, and uh, we've done some interesting things in the, the training department uh, with respect to running Spark on curriculum. And I've, I've got a you know 90 minute conference talk I do where I I live code a little Spark application on top of Cassandra data. But that's the answer for the ad hoc stuff. Ah, uh, okay. So I'd love to get into the Spark stuff uh, eventually, but let's let's keep talking a little bit more about the core of Cassandra. Cassandra was inspired by both the Amazon Dynamo paper and the Google Bigtable paper. So I'd like to talk about the inspirations that it took from each of these. But first, why did Cassandra? What did Cassandra take away from Dynamo? Great question. Uh, basically, it's the way it functions as a distributed system, the way it spreads data around the various nodes in a cluster, it gets from Dynamo. And if you back up a step and you think, well, look, I'm going to be a distributed database, uh, the, one of the primary problems I have to solve is I have to decide how to distribute things. I've got too much data to go in one place. So how do I know where I'm going to put it on, on what nodes I will put it? The basic insight in Dynamo um, was something like this. Dynamo, the data model, was a hash table. Dynamo is properly a, a distributed hash table. So the data model is a key and a value. Um, and what Dynamo said is we'll, we'll take the key and we'll hash it. And then we'll take the output of that hash function, mod the number of nodes in my cluster. So say I've got a 10 node Dynamo cluster. I have some you know, 160-bit hash function output. That number mod 10, and that's the node that I'll write that key to. Likewise, uh, when it, go, it comes time to read, I read a key, I hash the key, uh, I, I mod that uh, hash function output uh, by the number of nodes, and that tells me what node I go to get the stuff from. Uh, and that's, that's just in a, a nutshell, distributed hashing, and, and Cassandra gets that from Dynamo. Now, mm. uh, I should mention, if you have just freshly read the Dynamo paper, and then you go watch like some of the online training my team has done on how Cassandra does that. They're a little different, um, but in spirit, it's uh, they're really the same thing. And that's that's you know clearly the influence of Dynamo and Cassandra is the the distributed hashing. So the the distributed hashing, or it's, it's also sometimes called consistent hashing. H how has have there been any? Uh, you know, methodologies um, or tactics around distributed hashing that have evolved since the time of the Dynamo paper? Um, yeah, there's been, um, I, I don't know that I would say evolved. Uh, 
one example, uh, a feature, a feature that has come in Cassandra. Now, I, I would be fair to call this evolutionary. A, a feature that's entered Cassandra. Um, let's explain the the basic template I just gave you for how distributed hashing works. Let's just start with that and say, well, that's cool. I'd like that database, and I just I made up a number and I said I had a ten node cluster, which is great, but. Ideally, like your application succeeds and customers like your thing or whatever it is you're doing and it grows and then you need to add more computers, right? You've got too much work, too much data and you need to expand and you'd like to be able to do that without like taking the cluster down. I mean, that's, that's a, there just isn't scheduled downtime. Isn't really a thing that you can design into a system anymore. So, <laughs> um, those, those were nice days, but they're gone. Um, so to grow that cluster, um, you, you would insert a node in between two other nodes, right? Well, that, that new node has to get its data from somewhere and it's going to be from its neighbor in this, in this hash ring with the way Cassandra works. And so what you're going to do there is you're going to say, well, uh, you know, Mr. Neighbor node, you've got three terabytes of stuff and I need one and a half of them. And I know you're busy being a database right now and the network is doing all these other databasey things, but I just need to saturate you for a little bit and take your one and a half terabytes from you uh, before I can actually enter the cluster as a new node. That's, that's in that naive, consistent hashing scheme I described. That's how it works. And you can do that. Okay, that's not like it's fundamentally broken. You can throttle the data rates and all that kind of stuff. But a thing that Cassandra has, a feature that Cassandra has grown um, is something called virtual nodes or V nodes. And basically what that means is instead of saying, you know, if you could just imagine a ring, this is a podcast, so I can't draw a picture, but um, <laughs> imagine a, a, you know, 10 nodes, uh, drawn in a circle and imagine my, my hash code space is one to a hundred. And so, you know, the first node takes hash codes zero to nine, and then the next one, 10 to 11. And, uh, and so on that you're 10 to 11 to 20 and then 21 to 31, uh, in that circle, V nodes break up that ring such that each individual node is acting like it's take, taking a bunch of slices of that ring from all over the place. Uh, in, in other words, instead of just one sector of that circle being allocated, that hash ring being allocated to a, a given node, uh, that node randomly has many small sectors from all around the ring. What that means is when I go to add, it actually has a lot of implications, but in terms of growing the cluster, when I go to add a node, now instead of saying, hey, Mr. Neighbor to the right, you need to stream one and a half terabytes to me, every node in the cluster gets to split that work. So I get one and a half terabytes divided by nine uh, from all of the other nodes in the cluster and it's still network traffic. It's still a thing that takes finite time, but the whole burden is not placed on one node. So V nodes uh, would be an example of a little tweak on consistent hashing that Cassandra has developed along the way. Okay, that's that's great. Yeah, um, and I think consistent hashing is a really interesting and important topic. And we we explored it in um, a couple previous episodes. There was a show about React recently, and then also there's a show before that about. Um, the engineering at Uber, and both of, both of those talked about some um, more, uh, some other you know additional ways you can use consistent hashing. So it's okay. So we it, talk- it really shows up all over the place. Is the funny thing? Oh, it does. Like if you look at yeah. how Kafka works, it's kind of in there. And oh, uh, any any this is you know to a first order approximation. 
anytime you got lots of stuff and you need to put it in lots of places, right now it seems like the answer that that human beings have for computer programs to do that <laughs> is consistent hashing. So. It's funny because I actually I didn't know about it until. Um, I mean, I was like at least 100 episodes into doing this show uh, before I knew what consistent... I didn't know about consistent hashing. Yeah, so, that's, uh, that's, I, at least in terms of a distributed system. Yeah. But it's like core to modern distributed systems. It really is. And that's, hey, that's the advantage of doing the show. So <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay, with that in mind. So, so okay, we've discussed the implications of the Dynamo paper on Cassandra. What about the Big Table paper? Got it. So, um, Big Table... Uh, has lent some terminology that kind of sneaks in here and there that isn't super important. But the thing that is important is the data model. Cassandra gets its data model from Bigtable. Now, um, must proceed with caution here because <laughs> it, it used to be true prior to, I don't know, Cassandra 0.6, that the statement I just made was uber meaningful. Like if you knew the Bigtable data model, you knew the Cassandra data model, and you were off to the races. Um, these days, the way the, the API that Cassandra presents itself to developers is the Cassandra query language or CQL, this tabular data model, and this incredibly SQL-like query language um, that's super easy to learn, super easy to use because it's based on stuff you already know. Um, and, and so this Cassandra gets its data model from big table thing doesn't feel like it matters as much anymore. Now, there is this underlying storage model that you have to understand if you're going to be good at Cassandra. And, and that's, that's the thing. We call that the storage model now, and it comes from Bigtable. And if I could just briefly describe that. Please do. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, data that's organized into uh, tables. <laughs> there they are. They're tables. They're these named things. And a table is, in Bigtable, a hash table of hash tables. All right, you've got one thing called the row key, or in Cassandra, we call this the partition key now. And that uniquely identifies a row in your table. And inside that row, in big table terms, is another hash table. So um, that's, that's the big table data model. That's the underlying Cassandra storage model. And it's important that you know that for purposes of kind of kind of boundary checking your data model when you model in CQL, but that abstraction is no longer a faithful abstraction with which to think about programming Cassandra. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a tool, but you want to make sure that you don't like if you say hash table of hash tables you know, four and a half years ago, five years ago, that was very meaningful, and I spoke those words when I talked about Cassandra. If you say that now, my antenna go up. I'm like, whoa, what are you even talking about? That's not. That's not really what it is. Uh, it is under the covers. You just have to know that that's the under the covers look. Okay. Well, I mean, I do like this show to take the to prioritize the under the covers look. So let's nice. let's delve into that that uh, that data model um, a little more, given that it is still faithful um, under the covers. Uh, and so you know you 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 called it uh, a hash table of hash tables. Um, as I understand, Cassandra is a hybrid between a key value and a column-oriented database. Can you explain this way of looking at it? I can. I can. And in the process, I, I want to talk you out of that a little bit. So, Oh, please yeah. do. Um, it, the, um, 
And it's funny. Just last week, I was having this conversation about the column-oriented data. It it uh, historically has fallen into the category of so-called column family databases, and that is right. it, that is its big table lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, that's true at the level that data is getting stored on a node, and it's important for you to know that. And here, here's why it's important. It's important. You know the hash table of hash tables I described. Um, if you just think of it as the first hash table. Okay, forget about the nested hash table. That's just the value, whatever that. So is. this is the the partition, the, yeah. the hash into a, a partition. Exactly. So is this like a single server that you're that you're hashing uh, into? No, we're uh, cluster wide here. Cluster wide. Okay, so, okay. Uh, cluster wide partition. So got kind it. of back off, blur your eyes a little bit, and say a table is a hash table. It's okay. got a partition key and then this value, and we're going to be intentionally ignorant of the structure of that value for a moment. And so a table is just this uh, unordered bag of all of these key value pairs. So in that sense, it's worthwhile to talk about Cassandra as a key value store. In fact, um, you can find video of me on the internet describing Cassandra at, at conference talks, uh, and in fact, our own training materials that, that my team makes. Early on in describing how Cassandra works as a distributed system, I always talk about it as a key value store. So it, it's not one, but that's at that level of the table, uh, the partition key is the key, and then there's this value thing. And I say that's an unordered bag of key value pairs because the partition key gets hashed, and that's how we decide what node that partition is going to live on, node or nodes that partition will live mm. on. So you've got that. In that sense, yes, Cassandra is uh, to a not even a first order approximation, but like almost a first order approximation. It's like a key value store. Now let's dive into the what's inside a partition thing at the storage engine level, like or the um, in historical terms, what we used to call the thrift API, and what some people still call the thrift API uh, level of the data model. The the value in that hash table inside that partition that's again another uh, key value store. That's that's a, a the embedded hash table. Now, the thing is here, here's why it's important for you to know about this. That outer hash table, the partition key and the value, that thing, uh, there can be arbitrarily many of those. If if your table gets too many rows or too many partitions to it, add computers to your cluster. It'll be okay. Uh, you, you can't realistically make that too big. The inner hash table at this low level uh, thinking here, uh, that can get too big. And if you put, you know, 100,000 or a million key value pairs in there, you might start to regret putting more. (laughs) So at that level, that detail is important. And when we get up to the the programmer level of using CQL and creating a data model, then there are some things that uh, some reasons we're going to have to know about that inner limitation. Hmm. Okay. Well, so without getting too much, without spending too much more time on the data model, I guess we can we can zoom out and um, maybe we'll we'll come back to the to the data model and touch on another um, topics. But so Cassandra was built from the ground up with an understanding that hardware hardware failures can and do occur. How did this affect the construction of Cassandra? Good question. Well, Cassandra had already decided to be a distributed database. The the assumption was, again, I've got too much stuff to put in one place or one thing can't be reliable enough. So we're going to move our data 
uh, we're going to have our data spread among many computers. Uh, so enter consistent hashing basically and that, that whole mechanism. So you're kind of there already. Um, but the system I described when I was describing consistent hashing earlier, uh, sounded kind of cowboy in that there was only one copy of anything. Uh, and of course that would be bad because you know, any of those computers, any of those discs, all that stuff might die. So, uh, Cassandra has built-in replication. If you're going to put data on a node, then you get to decide other nodes. You know, you have a, an algorithm that, that decides in a systematic way, what are the other nodes in the cluster where I'll store a copy of that data? So I've got it in, say, three places at once. And easy enough, right? You could imagine to come up with some mechanism that says, well, you know, the data goes on node four, and so I'll put a copy on node five and node six as well. Uh, and that's great. But actually, life is is terrible again now because you have all of these decisions to make. Like, what if I can only write it to two of the computers? What if I can only write it to one of the computers? You know, is that a successful write? And then later on, when I go to read it, what if the nodes disagree? How do I how do I figure out systematically uh, which of the nodes is correct? So things like that are all built into Cassandra. And what I love about it, actually, I, I love the, de the decisions Cassandra made there from a design perspective, uh, because the developer is in the driver's seat for all the right things. You get to make the decision. You know, I said, what if one node is down? What if two nodes are down out of the three? Is that a successful right? Well, hey, that's up to me. I'm the developer. I'm going to make the decision about the I'm going to make an intentional trade-off as an engineering decision here. Uh, how much consistency do I actually need and when? And how much reliability do I need? And what kind of latency do I need on this write? All of those things are going to be determined by how many copies I need uh, before the write can move on. So I think you're talking about the term tunable consistency. Is exactly what we call it. So why and how can we explore the different axes of tunable consistency? Um, yeah. Well, I think of them, I think of there being three axes. One of those are three dimensions. One of those dimensions is pretty small in that it's, it's not really the thing that usually comes up uh, as an engineer building something on Cassandra, uh, but it's there for real. So um, the primary trade-offs that we're making are consistency and latency. All right. So the more nodes I'm going to require in a write, like say, let's just always assume for purpose of discussion that our replication factor is three. We want three copies of the data. Um, well, it's a theoretical possibility that I could say I need all three copies, all three nodes to write successfully to take the write before I move on. In practice, nobody does that because that that's completely intolerant of any failure. So usually with a replication factor of three, the trade-off that's being made is, do I need two or do I need one? And what I'm getting there, if I say, look, I only need one node to succeed, then I will see better latency numbers. My writes will, will appear to complete. They will complete more quickly than if I need to write two nodes successfully when I write. So usually in the mind of the engineer, the architect building that system, um, they're saying, I need the latency, so I'm going to give up consistency. We're trading latency mm. for consistency. And briefly, oh, go ahead. No, okay. no, go ahead. Uh, briefly there, uh, same thing on the read. I can say, uh, 
just, hey, I'm reading and I know three of you have this data. Whoever is going to give me the answer fastest, I'm going to take it from you. I can do that. Or I can say, I would like two of you to answer and agree on what the the right answer is. Um, again, I'm trading consistency for latency. And, and here in brief summary is the, the magic. When I write with uh, the the consistency level called quorum, that means more than half of the nodes. In other words, replication factor three, I need two nodes to take the right for me to write. And then when I read, I need two nodes to agree on the answer when I read. Um, if I do that, or not even agree, but I, I need them to respond. If I do that, then I'm guaranteed I'll always read my writes. I have a strongly consistent database. So this whole thing about eventual consistency, um, the it's 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 strongly consistent if I write and read with Quorum. Uh, it's not eventually consistent. It's just as consistent as as uh, a, a single server relational database. Now, um, those are slower writes and reads. So that that's basically the trade off that I've made. If I write with one and read with one, quickest node to answer in both cases, then that is an eventually consistent system with lower latency. Mm. The tiny dimension is reliability. Um, so given that nobody ever really requires a whole replica set to read and write, that would be extremely unreliable. Um, I'm slightly more available or reliable with a consistency level of one and slightly less available with two. So these axes that you discussed are consistency, latency, and reliability. Yeah, or availability the- would probably be a better thing for me to say. I, I said reliability, but I should say availability. Okay. Well, I was going to say the the trade-offs that we often hear about are the ones that are outlined by the CAP theorem. Yes. You know, consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. Uh, so if I'm understanding correctly, maybe the 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 things that you're talking about are, are maybe a more updated vocabulary version of the CAP acronym. The, would you say that's accurate? No, I wouldn't say that. No. Um, is, okay. I would say that the, the claims of the CAP theorem are absolute and they are they are claims on the nature of reality okay just given the strength of the the proof it seems like it's not you know the actual the proof of the theorem um doesn't seem like it's really under any threat it's kind of like okay the laws of logic say this (laughs) about reality and this is the one reality you get to have so deal with it given that the, the 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 cap theorem is saying uh, you know, pick any two of these three desirable utilities of your distributed database. Cassandra is a distributed database. Therefore, it doesn't really get to choose whether it's partition tolerant. Okay. It would, it would right. be a completely unsuccessful product if it, if it didn't. So I have to be partition tolerant. Now I have decisions to make about consistency and availability. Um, those remain, those decisions remain. Um, and those claims are all true. What I'm saying is, from an implementation perspective, like the cap theorem doesn't say anything about latency. Um, that's not uh, that's not a thing that is that participates in the argument of the theorem. <laughs> but in reality, that is a thing you trade off. Um, so it it comes more to the fore of the mind of the engineer trading consistency versus latency than consistency versus availability is is kind of practically how that works out. The availability trade's still there, uh, but you just it doesn't seem to get, you know, pride of place in the trade-offs. 
So these systems are often having different proportions of reads versus writes. Uh, how can Cassandra be tuned for different? I mean, with this tunable consistency in mind, um, with different ratios of reads to writes. Oh, good question. Okay, um, and that that doesn't come up so much in the tunable consistency end of things. Um, oh, okay. But it is it is a real thing, and this is again, this is like a practical implementation issue when you build a database this way uh you find that certain schemes work better for read heavy workloads and certain schemes work better for write heavy workloads um and i don't know it, maybe if you ask somebody else you could you could get a, a different view here but when you when you say that you say i have got a read heavy system i've got a write heavy system that calls up a different process in cassandra which is another really neat internal mechanism that's kind of fun to talk about called compaction and compaction is a fact of life when you decide to be a log-structured merge tree storage engine like Cassandra is. Uh, compact, compaction is a thing you will do. So the basic – and I mentioned the log-structured merge tree thing before. Um, uh, the, the basic notion there, uh, when it says log-structured, um, unfortunately, log can mean – a few different things. It can mean a big piece of a tree. It can be short for logarithm, or it can be uh, <laughs> a record that you append to. And of course, this means uh, the latter. Um, if you think about a log, like a, a log file, um, and like I have a Java background, so you know, logging frameworks are a thing we we reinvent like every eighteen months. It's it's fun in the Java world, but you know, you you have a log file. You write stuff to the end. And like I said, in Cassandra, you never seek into the middle of something and try to change it. And if you think this is a log, and if you're editing something in the middle of a log, it's like you're, you're probably committing a crime, right? If you're editing a log file, something is bad. So logs are things we append to, and then we don't change them. And that's what data files are like in Cassandra. We, we sort of buffer up writes in memory, and then when we decide we've had enough of that, we'll flush them out into a data file on disk. A data file on disk is called an SS table, which, by the way, is a term that we get from Bigtable. Um, and those SS tables, they are, lot like logs, immutable. We can't change them. So what that means is we kind of have a problem. We've got all these immutable things, and we're accumulating them on disk, but we don't have immutable data. You know, the data model lets you change the value of a column in a row, and you know, any, anything could change. We could delete things. So you end up with a lot of like storage cruft. You've got these old SS tables, old versions of uh, these quote unquote log files that uh, you don't need anymore. And so there's a periodic internal maintenance operation that that nodes do by themselves uh, called compaction. So when you talk about workloads that write a lot and workloads that read a lot, this bears on this compaction process. Um, there isn't just one way to compact data. There are a number of compaction strategies and, uh, with every, well, that's not, not quite true, but, uh, occasionally with major Cassandra releases, you'll get a new compaction strategy. Uh, so this is an ongoing area of research and optimization in Cassandra and in any database that's architecturally like Cassandra that people are actually using. This is a thing that you're going to keep working on. You always want it to get better. <laughs> Do these compaction strategies evolve in parallel to how garbage collectors evolve? Not, not exactly, and like not intentionally. There's clearly an analogy there because you you are collecting garbage, but like 
you know, you look at JVM garbage collectors, um, they, they only look like Cassandra compaction strategies. If you push it, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't look at one and say, Oh, Hey, look, they obviously got that from there. It's, it's more like, well, I have stuff and I don't need that stuff. And this stuff right. changes a lot. This stuff doesn't change a lot. And then let's make it all better. You know, so at that level, they're the same, but that's about as far as it goes. Okay. Well, okay. So it's talking in a more, um, I guess, uh, applicable, uh, way to the end, to the end user. Um, can you take us through the process of writing to Cassandra? Just like a simple write. What occurs from top to oh, bottom? Oh, boy, you got it. Okay. Um, now, um, let's take it from the language driver. Okay. So we'll start, say, I, we'll talk Java because it makes, feels like home to me. And you've got some. Me too. Good. good. We're, it's an uncomfortable home. We're, Lots of bad memories. <laughs> But, you know, it's the only one. It was an abusive childhood. <laughs> it was, but you still go home for Thanksgiving, don't you? Um, now, um, there's, a, there's a, a query that gets executed against the Java driver um, in the application, and that uh, query gets sent over a socket on a particular port to where? Well, it's a distributed database, so right away we've got a weird question uh, to answer. What node are you going to send it to? Well, that driver is able to connect to some node. It needs to start by connecting to some node when it when the application boots up in the database. And it'll get from that node a list of the addresses of all of the nodes in the cluster. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's 300. It could be changing over time. The driver has to stay up to date. But the driver will load balance for you. So as soon as that query gets sent to the cluster... Already, the driver has had to make a decision about how to do that load balancing. That's configurable. Like that's a 15-minute topic uh, or 20-minute topic in in good <laughs> curriculum about how all that works. But uh, you pick some dang node in the cluster. You send the query there. That cluster, uh, pardon me, that node has just assumed the role of coordinator. Now, it could have been anybody. There isn't any central node in Cassandra. Every node is a peer. There is no master. Uh, there is no single point of failure. But that node, which is just like all the other nodes, has coordinator duty. And, of course, what it doesn't know is that all of its comrades in the cluster are probably also coordinating all the time, right? So driver sends query, load balances, uh, sends it to a node. Node says, okay, I'm the coordinator. The coordinator is going to look at the the, the the right, you said this is a right, um, and it's going to say, all right, this is a right to this partition key. Now, that partition key is is probably going to be, uh, well, in a lot of cases, it ends up being a UUID. That's that's pretty common for reasons we can talk about later. Uh, so here's this partition key. It's a UUID, and the coordinator says, let me hash that. I'll run it through the hash function and mod the number of nodes, and then it'll say, all right, uh, this is the node it goes to. It goes to node uh, 53. But we're replicating, so it also goes to node uh, 54 and 55. So the coordinator is going gonna, is gonna to open connections to those three computers and say, I'm going to send it to 53, 54, and 55. And then I'm going to wait. Now, um, we've got a lot of balls in the air already. The client, we have no idea what's going on there. We, I haven't said if the client has moved on or is happy or anything. In fact, the client is, is still blocked on this right. Nothing has moved on. The coordinator's got the right. It's forwarded it to those three nodes. 
And uh, from the coordinator and the client standpoint, they're all waiting. Now let's jump over to the nodes that got that right. So zoom in on those guys. Node says, okay, good news. I have a right coming in. Um, for purposes of simplicity, I'm going to ignore any caching that might be happening. There's some caching that could be happening, but just pretend it doesn't. Sure. So um, we won't we won't update any caches here. All right. So it uh, the the um, the node has to do two things right away. It has to put that in this in memory structure called a mem table. Before, when I was talking about log structured merge trees, I said it gets cached in memory. That mem table is that in memory structure. It's buffering up writes before spooling them off to disk. But it would be kind of dangerous if there were no disk IO at all. So as it writes to the mem table, it also very quickly appends it to a structure called the commit log. Uh, there's very little computation. It's just this append only thing, just kind of there's the mutation event, stick it on the end of the commit log. And as soon as that write succeeds to the commit log, that is the operating system reports that the disk hardware has done the write. And anybody who knows anything about disks or operating systems or operational things knows there's just layers upon layers of lies that could be <laughs> happening there. But anyway, Cassandra says, okay, I did the right. It's in the commit log. It's written to disk. It's in the mem table. I will tell the coordinator that I'm done. So that node says back to the coordinator. Gotcha. We're all done here. Now the coordinator, this is where the, the, the consistency decision is made. If the client said, I want consistency level one, then as soon as one of those answers comes back, the coordinator can say, hey, client, you can unblock. Your right has succeeded. If it was, in this case, a quorum, then the coordinator would be waiting around for the other right. And when it got two rights, it would say, client, you may unblock. Mm, assuming a replication factor. Yeah, yeah which is true for all this. All right. Almost, right. almost done. Let's go back onto that node. So, uh, And that really is the right, by the way. Um, but at some point in the future, enough of those rights into this mem table thing uh, that's in memory, uh, memory will run out. And so that mem table will get flushed um, onto that disk structure, that immutable data file called the SS table. And that's, that's right. the, the very end of the write. Sure. Okay. And, um, you know, for listeners who want uh, a read walkthrough, I mean, I think a read, a read is fairly simpler. Um, and I think we walked through it in the, uh, the REAC episode. I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure that Cassandra reads similarly no, to how React does. I don't does. think I, I, I'm fuzzy on React. It's been about four years, okay. but the, the read is actually harder than the write. That's that's, oh, that's it is. the weird thing about Cassandra. Yeah, that that's not oh. true of most databases, but it it can write faster than it can read because it does less work on write. So let me let me um, make sure. This quick, yeah, please 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 walk us through so that. So the the driver, the coordinator, all that's the same. Okay, the coordinator uh, is quote unquote randomly selected by the driver. It gets the read and it says, okay, I've got work to do. This read is for this partition key. That means, again, we'll say 53, 54, 55, those nodes in the cluster, uh, this random cluster we're making up, and it will forward that read request to those three nodes. Now, those three nodes will get the read and, uh, you know, I've, I've never done this audio only. I've always had visuals. So let, me just, <laughs> let me just simplify this a little bit. Imagine, imagine everything you needed. I'm a node, I get that read, and I got this mem table, right? We, we wrote to that a minute ago. And everything I need in the read is right there in the mem table. 
I'm like, oh, sweet. Okay, well, take it out of Memtable, go. I know that's going to be the most recent data. So that's that's like an in-memory, quote unquote, cached kind of thing, and just send that back to the coordinator. So that's that's the good thing. The slightly more complex situation is if I have to go to disk. Okay, so if I have to go to disk, then I have all of these SS tables that I've flushed in the past. As, as writing happens, I'm continually flushing SS table after SS table, and that could happen every few seconds or every few days. It just depends on how much write traffic there is and you know various configuration parameters. Uh, but to keep things simple, if you just imagine this sequence of SS tables, uh, you know, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, what I have to do now, if what I need is not on the mem table, I have to go to the newest SS table and look there. And if I find everything I need, great, I'm done and I'll send that back to the coordinator. What if I only find some of what I need? That's, that's when it gets kind of cool. I, I could find nothing or I could find like just a couple of the columns of a six column read or something like that. Well, then I'll read those out of that SS table and I'll keep going back in time looking in SS tables until I've assembled all of the columns I need. Uh, from the partition read, and then I can be done. Uh, so, okay. two things here, um, and I'll 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 kind of count these as for further research, and probably not good to dig into them here. But the <laughs> the compaction matters a lot here. This is why the smarts of the compaction strategy are going to try to ideally make it likely that all of the stuff I'm probably going to have to read is going to be in one place. Because I don't want to have to go skipping around the 15 different SS tables to, to get me an answer. Uh, so I'm trying to avoid that. And the compaction strategy is our friend there. Also, there's a nifty data structure called a Bloom filter. Now, um, obviously, Wikipedia is the place you go for computer science questions. So you can get a great account there. I think there's also video of me at a OzCon maybe in 2013. I think 2013, where I did a talk called Data Structures You Need to Know, where oh, I get it. I get perfect. A, we'll put that in the show if notes. It's the, if it's for real, put it in the show notes. If it's not for real, make sure everybody knows I talked about something that's not real. But um, I, I know I gave this talk at OzCon. I think the video is there, and I give a little. Well, that's what a, that's what a bloom filter does, right? It tells you if something's not real. <laughs> it tells you if something is definite, Possibly. definitely there, or right. pro- uh, uh, definitely not there, or probably there. Uh, and that's that's me. I'm saying it. The link is probably there. Go check. Uh, and and I'm that's the that's what a bloom filter does. It's an in memory data structure that tells you uh, you should you should look here. It's probably here. Or don't bother. It's definitely not. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all right. I think we we've, we've talked about the read and the read and write enough. Uh, right. If I'm if I'm clear, yeah, that's, that's oh, yeah, I kind of lost. Okay, There's always okay. more to say. But that's, kinda, that's the basic picture. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, OK. Well, you know what? You touched on this uh, when you were discussing the right. And um, this is one thing that I find interesting about Cassandra is um there's no there's no leader node. There's no um, like name node type of structure. Uh, all of the nodes are somewhat created equal. Um, and I just I want to get an idea for what are the characteristics of a distributed system that need a name node type structure versus one that versus a distributed system that does not need um, a a unique 
uh, node. Because, you know, like Hadoop, for example, Hadoop needs a name node to, to orchestrate things. Right. So what are, is this, is this a, a question, a question that, that you can answer? Uh, I can talk about it. I mean, it, in, in a, the strictest sense, there's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm being careful here. Um, Hadoop, I think Hadoop could have been built with a, um, you know, without that reliance on the, the centralized name node. It was certainly convenient to build the system that way. And given the, the, the engineering constraints of Hadoop, it, it was right to take advantage of that convenience. Um, so mm. I don't, I'm not, I'm not critical of Hadoop for having a, a single master name node. What you get for cheap with a single master is transactionality. Um, and you can also, you can also probably make better latency guarantees within a certain scale, you know, range of, of, uh, transaction rates. Um, but you can get transactionality on the cheap in the acid sense, uh, inside a single master. So that would be the first thing that comes to mind. If I, if I really need acid transactionality in my file system metadata, then let me put my file system metadata in memory. Well, put it on disk, we put it in a single node and I want it to be fast. So I'll put it in memory and then, you know, out pops, uh, HDFS, right. Um, with a, um, a, with a, a system that is distributed in the way that Cassandra is, an, an architecture like Cassandra, you don't get acid transactional semantics. Um, now, there is a feature called lightweight transactions that can, within a given partition, uh, can give me atomicity. Um, and I already had uh, durability. You don't, you don't get isolation, uh, but you can get um, atomicity, consistency, and um, and, and durability. So you get three quarters of acid inside of lightweight transactions. So that's what comes to mind when I, when I think about mm. that question. Um, yeah, no, that's a very interesting answer. Yeah. Um, did you, okay. Did, did you have an answer in mind? I'd, I'd be interested to hear what, what you were thinking. I honestly, okay. I don't actually, but, the, but the, the next interview I'm, I have another interview today with Mike Keferella. So I might actually ask him that same question. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested um, to know. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, um, at DataStax, you work on Cassandra as a service. Um, why would developers want a service to manage their Cassandra rather than rolling their own? Okay. Let me um, uh, back you up there a little bit. We actually don't have a Cassandra as a service product. Oh. Um, there is a company called InstaCluster uh, that is the Cassandra as a service uh company and i believe they are an infrastructure partner of ours so there's a there's a uh a, a loving relationship there between the two companies they're great guys at insta cluster they do cassandra as a service and um i mean that makes a heck of a lot, heck of a lot of sense to me in the same way that any as a service thing does when i can handle the the performance trade-offs of the you know the service implementation in exchange for the reduced capital costs and reduced operational hassle and all of that. I mean, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. So as long as I can get that as a service thing, you know, in EC2 along with my application farm or whatever, then it works great. And so, and that's something like how InstaCluster works. Okay, sure. So I, I'm, 
I'm, I apologize for doing more research into Cassandra and less research into no data problem. stacks. But so what what do you yeah, do? Yeah, what do we stacks? do? I'll tell. You, I'll say what the company does, <laughs> and I'll say what I do, and of course. Absolutely. Uh, now that we're talking about my employer, we we have the uh, safe harbor hashtag. Uh, you know, everything I'm saying is my opinion, and I'm not speaking for Data Stacks here. Uh, of course, but, um, Data Stacks makes the uh, commercial distribution of Apache Cassandra. We have a product called Data Stacks Enterprise, and we integrate analytics and search. Uh, that is code for analytics means Hadoop and Spark. Search means basically Solar. Uh, integrated into with Cassandra, so you can do full text searches through a CQL query across indexed columns in a table. It's really amazing, and the Spark stuff is integrated Spark. So you've got basically Cassandra as a you you could create uh, data frames and RDDs from Cassandra tables and then persist them back into Cassandra tables. So that integration is there. Uh, it's also got other things like. Uh, security that enterprises typically want. There's an in-memory feature. The management tool is way cooler in the enterprise version. It's kind of, you know, the typical enterprise grade management stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, the goodies like support and consulting and all that stuff. Those are, those are really separate. Data Stacks is a product company. So that's that. Sure. Okay. You know, I, I'd love to, I would have loved to uh, delve into that topic but i uh and maybe we can do another show eventually uh on that because and we as we talked earlier about spark and uh there would be plenty of interesting conversation around that but i want i wanted to, to close off with um some discussion around around training and curriculum development because uh you're heavily involved in this this process of training engineers oh, yes. and uh and and explaining uh explaining these this types of uh, concepts as you've uh, explained so eloquently in this episode. So um, you're working on a modular curriculum system to improve this type of training, this type of enterprise training. Um, tell me more about that curriculum system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, um, I said this in my introduction, that's really what I do at Data Stacks is I'm the director of training. So I run a team that makes curriculum, which is the stuff you're talking about. And I also run a web team that makes uh, a site called Data Stacks Academy. Uh, so we had the uh, safe harbor hashtag now for the shameless plug hashtag. That's academy.datastacks.com. Cool <laughs> open, training on open source Cassandra. It's not all focused on our product. Um, so there's there's lots of stuff you can learn about Cassandra on that site. The curriculum system. So excited about this. So um, historically, uh, enterprise software company like Data Stacks is going to have training effort and, and curriculum and everything. And we all know the tools that that gets built with, right? It's PowerPoint. You'll write lab procedures up in Word and maybe go to the trouble of exporting them as PDFs and you'll have all these things to deliver. And that's kind of where you live. Um, there's a number of reasons why I didn't want to do things that way, but the biggie is this. So about, I don't know, it was about a year ago, we took a step back. Some people at Datastacks who know Cassandra really, really well took a step back and they built a mind map of all of the things you should know to be good at this. They were like, imagine the, the apotheosis of the Cassandra expert, the perfect Cassandra user. What would all would be all the things that person would know? Massive mind map. Like nobody's ever going to know that. Uh, but I said, all right, here's this tree, this graph of knowledge. And I said, all right, every node in that graph, every little topic in there looks to me like a little packet of curriculum, 
like maybe that's five minutes worth of of curriculum or 10 minutes or so. If you made a video out of it, it'd be a little five or 10 minute video. And I got to thinking, okay, here's this big tree. Um, every, every node is, is a little five or 10 minute topic. There's some slides, there's notes. You probably have some quiz questions and, and like exercises and maybe some test data and whatever stuff goes in there. Uh, it seems like, in fact, it doesn't seem like it is the case that you could take that tree and map it onto a directory tree. It's a tree. You could put it in a file system. And so the path to a node in that knowledge graph is a, a, a directory path. And it seems like, gee whiz, uh, here is this big project. And, you know, I could put this in a Git repo and throw it up on GitHub and collaborate around it that way. Um, and you'd have this brilliant modular curriculum system. And this isn't a Cassandra thing. This is any topic. Build your mind map. Uh, and and go to town. Now, there are other problems you have to solve to make this work well. Uh, when you really get into building coherent courses with this, um, much more to say, but that's that's the basic genesis of the idea. And then I realized, yeah, PowerPoint, not really, because then I just, <sighs> you can't control PowerPoint and Git. That's a, that's a disaster. And we needed a way to say, here's this graph of knowledge. Here's all these nodes all over the place. And it's all well and good to poke around and explore that on your own, but customers buy courses, you know, they buy, give us the, you know, operations and administration Cassandra course, or give us the basics course, or give us the data model. Right. Not, not, not the directed acyclic graph. Yeah. Of yeah. The graph's cool. <laughs> There's a lot to say about the graph, but, <laughs> but they want a course. And so it's like, you have to annotate that with this other path through those nodes. Uh, well, Imagine each of those nodes is identifiable by a directory path. Um, and so what we've built is we've we've built a little custom build. It's a it's a Gradle plugin, which if you know some of the stuff I've done, it should come as no surprise that it would be Gradle. Um, and we'll just list those paths in a text file and the build will suck in the slides and the notes and the exercises and all that stuff. They're all written in ASCII doc now. So the build is able to, to deal with them programmatically. And gloms all those together into a packaged course. And you get a little zip file with you open it up and you open the index HTML and it says, okay, you know, here are your, uh, here are all your modules in the course and click here for your exercises. And it's this nice web-based package. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like a, a really cool project. Uh, and you're going to be doing some training at Strata plus Hadoop in March are the resources that you can create from this curriculum system, will they be utilized in your training there? Uh, that is correct. They will. Uh, it is our plan as of uh, right now. Let's see. Today is the 18th of January. Uh, yes, it is our plan as of right now for uh, all of that training to be delivered from this new next generation curriculum. My team's in the process of, of rebuilding and modernizing and, and um, you know, bringing – content up to date and porting into this new system all at the same time. So should be the case that all this is uh, the new stuff and we'll be able to distribute that web-based content as a zip file to anybody who comes. Great. Well, that seems like a good place to close off. Um, Tim, thanks for coming out of Software Engineering Daily for a really illuminating discussion of Cassandra. Um, I hope the listeners will check you out on your YouTube YouTube videos or uh, at Strata Plus Hadoop in March. Um, 
yeah, thanks for coming on, and, and, and you're welcome to come on in the future if you want to talk about talk more about data science. Uh, Jeff, my pleasure, and I'd love to be back. I look forward to it.